0: We work through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're going to cover verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 through chapter 5, verse 7 today. Let me read, and then I'll pray, and then we'll look at a couple of things together from this text. Starting in chapter 4, verse 4. I saw that all labor and skillful work is due to one, one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king. Who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be a king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Chapter 5, verse 1 Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience. Than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words, therefore, fear God. Let's pray. Father, we're looking to your word today, believing your promise that this brings life that you bring guidance and wisdom through your word, that you lead to salvation through your word, that you instruct us on how to build a life that will count in eternity. And so we look to your word together today, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds and let our eyes see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is my weekly reminder that this is a difficult book. There, there, are, there are challenging and strange and seemingly unrelated things in every chapter. The, the language is often difficult. It's, it's, as, I, as I was preparing, I was like, what am I going to do? There this, this seems, seems to be so many random tangents going on here. And then as I studied, it stood out to me. This is a series of betters. Betters. The, the author says, better is this, and better is that, and better is this. And so I want to follow that structure of this passage. There are four betters that he points us to here. And so we'll work through those together. The first one is this. Better to know when to work and to rest than to work endlessly. Better to know when to work and to rest than to work Endlessly. This is verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to a person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort in a pursuit of the wind. If you look closely here at this passage, there's a scale There's the workaholic. All labor and all skillful work is due to a person's jealousy of another. This is futile, he says. The workaholic that that does not rest, that does not know when to quit, that does not know when to move on from his work because he's driven by jealousy or he's driven by the need to succeed at something or he's, he's driven by the desire for more material possessions or whatever it is that drives him. He says this is futile. It's futile. Workaholism is futile. Workaholism is an attempt to control your world. And we talked about last week how it's futile to to seek to live in control of everything. It's better to surrender yourself to the God who does control everything. But on the opposite end of that spectrum, if workaholism is, is no good and it's futile, then we have the opposite end of the spectrum, which is laziness. Verse 5 the fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. That's no good either. It's no better. If 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 workaholism is a problem, then maybe we should just relax, kick up our feet, and not worry about what's going to happen. He says, no, 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 no. That's what the fool does. And he consumes his own flesh. He says, then, better one handful with rest. Do you see the balance there? Then two handfuls with effort in a pursuit of the wind. If you, if, you, if you work too much and you strive too hard for whatever it is that you're pursuing, he mentions specifically here the, the, the per, one person's jealousy of another. I gotta have nicer things, I gotta have better things. I want to have better things than I had growing up. Or I want to have better things than my neighbor. I want to be more successful. I want to be more highly esteemed than the people around me. Whatever it is that drives that workaholism, it's futile. But, but let's not be lazy. Better than having two hands in a pursuit of the wind is to have one hand in rest. To know when to work and when to rest. That is Better. That is better than to work endlessly. And it's better than to not work at all. So let's talk about work a little bit. The Bible actually talks a lot about work. The Bible instructs us many different things when it comes to work. And I think it's it's helpful to think biblically about the work that we do. So I I wanna say three things about work. The first one is this, and this won't be on your handout, but you can certainly jot it down if you find it helpful. The first one is to work as if you are working for the Lord. The Bible tells us to do such. In fact, the Bible tells us in the very beginning, in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God creates man and woman and tells them to work. He tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue and rule over creation. He places them in a garden. If you've ever planted a garden, what do you associate with a garden? Work. There's work to be done. Gardens don't tend to themselves. God wants us to work. He calls us to be stewards of creation. We are to take what he has created and build upon it. We are to take what he has created and make it fruitful. We are to multiply. We are to fill the earth and rule over it, to subdue it, it says in Genesis. So it's no surprise in Genesis 3.23 when the Bible says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. The point here is that all work ultimately is done for the Lord. That should be our mentality, that ultimately whatever we do with our lives it's he, he is the ruler over his creation, and everything that we do is, is we do it toward him and for him in some sense. And so you might as well have that mentality that you're working for the Lord. You are working his creation. So whatever you do, do it for the Lord. If you make car parts, or if you sell car parts, or if you install car, car parts, do it for the glory of the Lord. Find ways to relate your work. If you teach children, teach for the glory of the Lord. If you clean homes, clean for the glory of the Lord. If you engineer, engineer for the glory of the Lord. Whatever you do, work as if you are working for the Lord. This is the first command that he has given to man. To work his creation. Find a way to tie whatever you do back to God's intended purpose for the world. Find a way, find, th- think on this. Think about how does your work tie into God's purpose for his creation? How are you advancing creation? What are you doing that is, is building upon what God gave us to work with in Genesis 1? So work as if you are working for the Lord. Number two, view work as a means to provide and also to fund gospel ministry we have the pleasure of working within a society where we are compensated financially that sounds simple enough but that's just simply not the experience of all humans throughout human history a a vast percentage of humanity throughout human history has actually lived and worked within slavery but we have the privilege of we go to work and it is expected and demanded that we get compensated financially for what we do. And so view your work as a means to provide for yourself and for your family if you have a family, but also to fund gospel ministry. I love this story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 verses one and following. I'll just read some of this here. He tells this very interesting story. He says, not... Now he said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his, that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master, he asked the first one. So make sure, just to make sure you understand the scene here. So there's a rich man with a manager who's not managing well, but he's, he has a responsibility over debtors who are in debt To the rich man, okay? So he brings in the debtors. He says, how much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. So he cuts it in half. Next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your invoice and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. So the manager takes all of, this, all of this debt that is owed to the rich man and he cuts it down substantially. And he does this explicitly so that when he loses his job, those people will all be pleased with him and they'll invite him into their home and he'll be taken care of. It's very wise. This is a good move. The master is so impressed, it says he praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age, listen to this, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. That is a stinging accusation that Jesus directs at his followers. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Listen, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So you have, So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, So Jesus tells that story to teach them some, some principles. It's a, it's a fascinating story in that there's so many problems with it. Like, this is not what we would consider a great example. And Jesus says, yes, that's exactly what I want you to understand. The children of this age are more shrewd than you. And what he's saying is if that, if that manager found a way to use worldly wealth to his advantage, how much more so should we, as followers of Jesus, find ways to use our worldly wealth for his kingdom? That's the point that he's trying to drive home. And he says, he's, he, he, he lays it on them at the end of that passage. No servant can serve two masters. you got to choose. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve money? Now, most of us sitting here in church on Sunday morning aren't going to say, no, I serve money. <laughs> Never mind serving God, I serve money. But I also think that most of us don't think that there's really a choice between the two. We live our lives as if we can serve both. Jesus says, no, you can't do that. You either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Do not serve money. Let money serve you. That's, what he's, that's, that's the point that, that he wants us to see. Money has a purpose. You know the old saying, money, money makes a terrible master but a great servant, right? It's a terrible thing to be mastered by money. It's a terrible thing to live your life in service to money. That, that kind of goes back to what he says here in Ecclesiastes. If we're serving money, then we live in futility. It's a pursuit of the wind. Better to know when to work and to rest. And better to know whether or not you are serving money or it is serving you. Work is an opportunity to provide. It's an opportunity to provide for our our needs and for the needs of our families and perhaps some people beyond our family, but it is also an opportunity to fund gospel ministry. And just as that wise manager used money to accomplish something greater, to accomplish something beyond what that money was currently doing, we can use money to fund gospel ministry. We can use money to help grow the church, to send missionaries, to help more people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so work as if you're working for the Lord. Work to provide and to fund gospel ministry. And then thirdly, view work as a mission field. Your work, whatever it is, is a mission field. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses, he told his followers. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, wherever and whatever you do for work, you are God's witnesses. You have opportunities every day to help people know him more. That's an incredible privilege that's an, that's an incredible responsibility as well, but it's an incredible privilege that we get to be God's witnesses, that we can help people know what he is like. Years ago, before I went into full-time ministry and, and I, I, worked the, the, I worked just a regular job, um, I wanted so badly to be a witness. I wanted so bad. I think in my zeal, I didn't always know the right way to go about that. And I look back and I see some of the mistakes that I made, certainly things that I would do differently. But I was always asking that God would use me to be a witness in that workplace. And so I would, I would walk in every morning and after I'd punch in, I would just kneel down and pray. And it was kind of weird because I did it in a place where everybody could see me, but I wanted everybody there to know I'm praying for us. Like I'm I'm this what we're about to do goes beyond the physical labor that we're about to do. That what we're about to do is is part of the eternal existence that God has created us for and it matters. And so I would pray and then I would spend time during breaks or sometimes at lunch I just had one of those little pocket Bibles. Now we have it, of course, on our phones and stuff. This was before that. We had one of those little pocket Bibles. I'd just get out and read. And I just would get into God's word. And people would, you know, a lot of people, like I said, there's some things maybe I would do differently. I don't know if that's the best way to go about being a witness in in the place that you work. Um, But I just wanted people to know that there was something more than what we were doing there day in and day out. I just wanted to be a witness. We have that opportunity. you know. And I, I say that because I know you're sitting there, you're thinking like, you're a pastor, of course, you're a witness, you know, and that's true, I get it. Like what I do is different in, in some ways than what most of you do. But you can be a witness wherever you work and whatever you do for your work. In fact, God wants you to be a witness. In fact, it's really not a matter of whether or not you are a witness, it's a matter of what kind of witness are you. Are you truly and accurately representing Christ to the people that you work with? Or are you just maybe affirming their suspicion that all Christians are hypocrites and, you know, you know people say and do things on Sunday and then they don't really live it out the rest of it. I'm not saying you should be perfect. I'm not saying that. Don't ever, don't let anybody put that weight on you. You know, if you slip up and you do something stupid or if there are things that you struggle with on an ongoing basis, look, God's bigger than all of that. I'm not, it's, it's not as if you have to be perfect in front of, if, if you strive for that, you will be a hypocrite. If you strive for that, if you try to do everything right, then you'll just be fake and you, you won't be the kind of Christian that they really need to see. You won't be the kind of witness that they really need to see. But are you sincerely living out your faith? Monday through Friday or whatever days of the week that you work. View your work as a mission field. God has placed you uniquely in the position that you are in where you work so that he can reach the people around you through you. It's a mission field. So work is, if you're working for the Lord, view work as a means to provide and fund gospel ministry and then view work as a mission field. Ecclesiastes says it's better to know when to work and to rest than to work endlessly. Don't be a workaholic. Don't make your life all about your work, but work responsibly and work intentionally. Work as Christians should work. Next thing on your handout. Better to have companions than to be alone. It says again, and I'm going to read verse 7. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. A couple observations here. One, he says that someone who works and works and builds wealth and gains all this stuff for themselves with no one to share it with with no family to speak of, with no companion to speak of, somebody who is just building wealth for themselves, who is working and struggling, that is a miserable task. That's what he says. It's a miserable task. And all who are wise will come to that conclusion. But Then he says two are better than one. And then he uses some examples of I get, one, I get number one and number three. It's number two that, I don't know, I probably would have picked something else. <laughs> but he said, these, are the, these are the examples he, gets, he gives. If either falls, his companion can lift him up. I get that. Pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. And I don't know, it's hard to say if this is supposed to be metaphorical or if he's just literally saying, if you trip and fall on your face, it's nice to have somebody help you get up off the ground. I think we can extend that. Companionship certainly extends beyond that. Because we all fall. We all fall in life and need people to help pick us up. But then here's number two. He says, also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? I mean, maybe it's because I have a furnace. that It's not a huge concern when I lie down whether I'm going to be warm or not. But we see the importance of companionship, right? Verse 12 says, and if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. Yeah, it's good for somebody to have your back, to have some friends that, that, that come alongside you and protect you, whether that's literally and physically or metaphorically. It's good to have some people that have your back. I remember, um, I think I was about 15 when I got in my my first real fist fight other than my brother, I fought my brother every day, two, three times a day for like 15 years, okay, until we finally got tired. But like the first real fist fight that I was getting in, I didn't really want to be in it. It was a guy that I was pretty sure he was going to kick my butt and I just wasn't real excited about that. Uh, I've never been a fan of getting punched in the face. I just don't think it's, it's all that enjoyable. But here we are. I find myself in this situation. So what do I do? I start looking around for my friends. I'm like, hey man, you know, this thing gets out of hand. You're going to jump in, right? And I'm making sure I got the proper support around me so that this doesn't get too crazy. And here here's what it says in Ecclesiastes if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. That's one of the benefits of companionship. Relationships matter. Relationships are important. In fact, you were created for relationships. Ultimately, you were created to have a relationship with your creator, but you were also created, whether you knew this or not, you were created for human relationships. I can prove that to you. The Bible says so much. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God said, Remember, this is the second chapter of the Bible. We're learning about creation. God created man. He says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. This is what God does. He creates the first man there's only one man on the earth. His name is Adam. He creates this man. He sees it is not good for man to be alone, but to make sure that the man understands the uniqueness of human companionship before he creates a human companion, he creates all the animals. And he brings them before Adam. And he says, what do you want to name this one? I don't know how long that took. That had to be an amazing process each time god brings a new animal before adam he's seeing this creature for the first time brand new creature and he got to name them and i mean i don't know how he kept coming up with names you feel like after a while you would you would run out of names and just start naming them ridiculous things like yeah four-footed fluffy thing with a tail you know but he didn't he he was smarter than us he was creative he kept coming up with names and he's and with each animal was the new, a new opportunity that perhaps this creature would be a companion suitable for Adam. And with each creature that God brings before Adam, they both come to the same conclusion. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. That one won't work either. And he showed him all of the animals. And it says, but for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. There was nothing there that could meet the unique needs of this human being. So what does God do? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And this is an old preacher joke. I feel uh, compelled to use it here. The Bible never says that he woke man up, which explains a lot of the difficulty between man and women. <laughs> He caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. For she was taken from man. And then it says in the very next verse, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. God created us from the very beginning with this unique need for companionship with one another. Something that cannot, you cannot get enough dogs or cats to satisfy the human need for companionship with one another. It's just the way that we are created. Now, dogs and cats have some advantages, whether you're a dog person or a cat person. You're not normally both. Some people are. But they do have some advantages over human beings. I won't argue with that. But without human companionship, man is simply not complete. He's just not complete. And so it's better to have companions than to be alone. That's what Ecclesiastes points us to. Now, Companionship in in Genesis chapter two, there we see the first marriage. This is between male and female. Ecclesiastes doesn't necessarily go towards marriage; it just simply goes to companionship. So these there are needs there are there are needs beyond just the need for a spouse. We need friendship with one another. Christians Christians are called to fellowship with one another and to have deep, meaningful relationships with one another. No man does well, in, does well alone in isolation. We need one another. We need the balance that other people bring to our life. I can't tell you how many times in my own mind I have justified my own actions, sinful actions, where I, I've, I've built a case in my mind. And then as soon as I begin to make that case to another reasonable human being, I realize how silly it is. That is the value of having friendships. That is the value of having other people in your life that you bounce things off of, who who give you feedback, who sharpen you, who support you, who guide you, who are there for you. Uh, This week I benefited greatly uh, from reaching out to um, a, a friend that I've had for quite some time. We were going through some things in our family, and I just needed some guidance. I needed Uh, My my mind was going crazy. I I couldn't. I wasn't happy with any of the of the 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 course of actions that I was coming up with. And and all it took was just an hour sitting down face to face with a brother in Christ and say, Hey, here's what's going on. What do you think? And I found his wisdom and his guidance to be so helpful. When it it calmed me down when I couldn't calm myself. I just couldn't. I tried and I was frustrated. I was like, I want to be able to fix this, but I couldn't do it alone. I needed a friend. Now, it's kind of an extreme example. Not every week is like that, but I don't think we realize how much we need the friendship of other people in our lives. Value your friends. Build your friendships. Reach out to people that that help sharpen you and make you a better person and a stronger Christian. Now, let's talk about marriage. Marriage is difficult to talk about because not everybody's happily married, (laughs) Uh, Some people are unmarried and unhappy. Some people are unmarried and happy. Some people are married and happy. Some people are married and unhappy. We're having a variety of experiences when it comes to marriage relationships. But for the the sake of time, I just want to say a couple things briefly. I want to say, first of all, if you are married, don't take it for granted. Love your spouse. Cherish your spouse. Value your spouse. Even when things aren't perfect, don't take it for granted. There are people who long to have what you have. If you're not married, if you find yourself single, don't despair. Don't despair. Serve the Lord and draw near to him. He is always there. And he is able to fulfill and meet your needs at any season of your life. And so if you find yourself single wanting to be married, don't despair. If you find yourself single and not wanting to be married, there are one of two things that could be going on. God does call some people to celibacy, to singleness. And perhaps for, at least for this season, that's what he's called you to do. It could be, though, that you've just grown bitter and grown discouraged by past relationships. And if that's you, I'd say don't allow yourself to remain in that condition. Work before the Lord to have a heart that is open to what he wants to do. Because there's great benefits in marriage. It's a beautiful way to go through life when you have the right spouse and both of you are seeking the Lord together. So if you're married, don't take it for granted. Love your spouse. If you're not married, don't despair. Seek the Lord. Serve him. Draw near to him. He will guide your paths. One more thing on relationships before we move on from this point. Uh, Better to to have companions than to be alone. One last thing I want to say. Make amends in the broken relationships that you have. Life is full of evidence that it is simply too short to live your life out with unmended, broken relationships. As much as it is up to you, make amends in your broken relationships, particularly when it comes to family or close friendships. So many times we let silly things tear us apart from each other. So many times we let things that really could be resolved Separate and divide us from one another. And I would encourage you to make amends as much as it's up to you. Okay, Uh, here at Redemption Church, one of the things that we do to build companionship, to build relationships, is that we meet weekly in small groups. You may have noticed there's not a lot of relational growth happening here this morning. You're all sitting there staring at me, probably staring at the clock, wondering when when I'm going to shut up so that we can get out of here and eat lunch. But this is not a super relational environment, is it? And so what we do is we meet together in small groups, and those small groups meet in people's homes because we think that's the best place for relationships to grow. And they, they go over uh, usually a study together. They eat and fellowship together and talk and, and build relationships. And would strongly encourage you to get involved in small groups. I think that is uh, the strength of our church relationally is those intentional times where we get together. Another way that you can build relationships is by serving. When you serve with people, just like those of us who went on the mission trip to Mexico together, when you serve with people, you build relationships. So get involved. Don't, don't be content just to show up when the service starts and sit in your seat and then leave as soon as it's over. Get involved. Build relationships. It's, it's the way God has wired us. Okay, we've got two more to get through. This one I can move through quickly. The next one, better to be poor and wise than to be powerful and foolish. Better to be poor and wise than to be powerful and foolish. This is how it's stated in Ecclesiastes. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit To all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. This reminds me of one of the things that I think you need to become a little bit adept at as you read Ecclesiastes. And that is sometimes, like, take a passage like this. There are some things that I honestly just don't understand here. And, and you just gotta live with that as you move through Ecclesiastes. It's good to wrestle and to, and to try to dig in and to try to understand, but then there's times where you just gotta say, well, I don't get it, but I think I got the main point. And this passage is one of those places where I would say that. I understand the first part of this passage. I don't understand so much about what, what 15 and, and 16 are about, but I think I understand 13 and 14. It's better to be poor and wise than to be powerful and foolish. Why? When you you gain power, when you gain success, there's a temptation to stop listening to other people. There's a certain amount of of listening and responding to other people that is required for you to become successful, but then you get a little bit of money, you get a little bit of power. In this case, we have a foolish king who, let's say he has all the money and all of the power and no longer wants to pay attention to warnings. He has become arrogant. He has become unteachable. And it is without a doubt better to be poor and wise than powerful and foolish The more power you have, the more temptation you will face. It's a temptation that can be overcome. But the more temptation you will face to not listen to nor care about other people. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can be poor and powerless and be a jerk. (laughs) There are plenty of those walking around. But the temptations increase, I think, as you have more power and as you have more wealth and you don't need to rely on other people, you tend to isolate yourself from the wisdom of other people and the instruction of other people. And that's exactly what has happened here in verses 13 and 14. We have someone who who grew up poor, who came from prison and became king, and they were actually worse off in the end. Don't end up worse off. Learn and, and be humble and be willing to listen to others no matter how high you climb. I also think we should be careful what we wish for. Instead of praying for everything you think would be good for you, why not pray that God would give you what he knows would be good for you? And for some of, that, for some of us, we just might be better off poor. We might just be better off powerless. In certain seasons of our lives, for sure, so sometimes what we want isn't necessarily going to be what's best for us. It may change us for the worst. I mean, history is full of people who have won millions and millions of dollars in the lottery only to have their lives completely ruined by it. Be careful what you wish for. It's better to be poor and wise than to be powerful and foolish. And I think this also, there's a lesson here that if we are poor and powerless, don't despair. That may be the best thing that we have going for us because that makes us humble or can make us humble. It makes us in a position where perhaps we're more willing to listen. And those are good traits to have, especially when it comes to our relationship with God and with others. All right, I'll move. so that's it for that one. We moved quickly. Let's look at the last one. Better to fear God and obey than to be hasty and foolish before him. Better to fear God and obey than to be hasty and foolish before him. All of that. Okay, this this is a wisdom book. So it's not like, you know, and it's an Old Testament wisdom book. So, you know, Jesus doesn't come up in every verse, and there's not always a lot of, like, Christian theology, as we would think of it, that's, that's evident here. But here we get to some stuff that I think we can really sink our teeth into spiritually. Here we get to some stuff that, that really has benefit for us in our relationship with Christ. Better to fear God and obey than to be hasty and foolish before him. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility. So do many words, therefore fear God. I think the point here is the outward and religious showmanship, if you will. This idea of, of being loud and boisterous about your intentions and about your faith, but really not having any substance behind what is outwardly visible. And you know, to, to speak in, in a way that you're, you're bold before God, but it does not come from a heart of true worship. To do that brings God's judgment. This is a theme that carries over into the New Testament. Jesus is, Jesus' harshest words are often reserved for the most religious. That's what's mind-boggling to so many at the time. When Jesus came into Israel at the time of his birth and through his earthly ministry was a time of heightened religious fervor among the Jewish people. There There were people that were practically just professionally religious. And a lot of it lacked true heart worship. There was a lot of outward expression of of faith and belief and religion. There was a lot of religious showmanship. But there weren't a lot of hearts that were truly after God. Jesus confronts those who rely on those types of outward religious expressions instead of sincere worship. And he calls them out on it. Listen to what he says to the scribes and the Pharisees. These were some of these professional religious actors. He says it in Matthew 15, verses seven through nine. He says, hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. These, the people that Jesus is speaking to were considered, without a doubt, to be the most religious people of the day. They were the ones that everybody looked up to and said, they're the ones that are doing it right. They're the ones that have devoted themselves to religious observance. They're the ones who are setting an example for the rest of us. Jesus says, hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He would say to the same group later on in in Matthew chapter 23, Verses 25-28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These are strong words. These are strong condemnations that Jesus delivers to the most outwardly religious people of his day. And as I think back to what Ecclesiastes says, he says, it's better to approach in obedience than to offer sacrifices as fools do, ignorantly doing wrong. Obedience is a matter of the heart. Sacrifices can be done without any real heart change. We can offer outward religious expressions of worship without really having a heart that is one of worship. That's what Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. Everything looks great on the outside. On the outside, you got everybody full, but you're hypocrites, because on the inside, you're full of dead bones and all kinds of impurity. The warning in Ecclesiastes here, when he says, don't be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. The, the warning here is to humbly approach God. To reverently approach God. Therefore, fear God is his conclusion in verse 7. Fear him. Fear him does not mean does not mean to be afraid of him. It means to be, it means to, be to revere him and to, to be humble before him, to honor him, to approach him appropriately. Jesus speaks of people who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. What do you get when you honor him with your lips, but your hearts are far from him? Judgment. You get judgment. That's the conclusion in Ecclesiastes, and that's the conclusion in the New Testament. It does you no eternal good to fix everything, to do all the right things on the outside. To present yourself as religious, but your heart not be humble before God. Does you know eternal good? In fact, Jesus hates that. He attacked the Pharisees. He was relentless when it came to these Pharisees and scribes. He does not want, nor will he tolerate people who just come to him boldly, who have all kinds of things to say that come from hearts that are not changed before him. The gospel teaches us that we are not worthy to come before God in our own merit, that our hearts must be changed and we must, we must be made presentable by what Jesus has done on our behalf. Yet people go on pretending to be religious, pretending to be uh, committed to God and prepared to do whatever he asks. And it's all just a show. May we not fall into that trap. May we not honor him with our lips while our hearts are far from him. May our hearts overflow through our lips as we worship him out of a true and sincere faith, a belief in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Better to fear God and obey than to be hasty and foolish before him. You know, I think where this all really ties together is at the cross. Because the cross exposes us. Just as Jesus was exposed on the cross. Not for what he had done wrong, but for what we had done wrong. The cross shows us how bad our situation really is before him. That Jesus, the son of God, the only one to, to, to live perfectly, without sin, before God on the earth, had to die in our place. Shows just how bad our situation is before him. And it's only when we come to God through the cross of Jesus, that means when we submit ourselves and surrender to him and say, apart from the cross of Jesus, I don't dare come. Apart from what Jesus has done on my behalf, I have nothing to say before you apart from what, what Jesus has done to, to atone for my sin, to pay the price and the penalty for what I have done wrong against a holy God, I simply cannot stand before you. But because of what Jesus has done, we can come boldly. Not bold because of our own merit, bold because of Jesus's. There's a huge difference, huge difference, It's the difference between receiving judgment and receiving grace and mercy. When we come in our own merit with our our chest puffed out, look at me, I go to church every week. I put a check in the offering every week. I make sure that my kids are going through kids' classes every week. Look how good I am doing. Jesus says, you can worship me with your lips, but it's your heart that really needs to change. And when that happens, you come and you come humbly. Humbly but confidently because of what Jesus has done. Because of Jesus, I get to be here and I get to worship. Because of Jesus, I stand forgiven. Because of Jesus, I'll be with my creator forever. Because of Jesus. Two totally different things with two totally different outcomes. That's why it's better to fear God and obey than to be hasty and foolish before him. Let's pray. Jesus, only because of you, only because of you can we come in the boldness of the gospel. Only because of you can we stand before you and know that our sins are forgiven and know that we have an eternal hope and know that our lives here can count for eternity so we humble ourselves before you we fear you in the biblical sense of fear we are in awe of you we revere you we know that no good thing dwells within ourselves except for the the spirit which you have given to guide us and to bring life to our dead bodies. Jesus, if there's anybody here today who hasn't made that decision to receive you as Savior and who hasn't made the decision to follow you as a disciple, I pray that today you would move in their hearts, cause them to want your forgiveness and to want a relationship with you through what you did on the cross. And cause them to want to follow you in obedience. For that is better. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for your word which speaks to us and instructs us in many ways. But most importantly in how we can live before you. May we take these things and apply them this week. May we receive this as wisdom from God. The wisdom to live a life that will count for eternity. In Jesus name we pray.